Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hello and welcome to the Speak Up podcast. This is Marie Brown, the National Manager of Professional Education and I am recording from the 2019 National Conference. Today we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr Elizabeth Murray, Dr Jacqueline McKechnie and Dr Donna Thomas. They have presented a poster and publication two attendees at the conference called Children with Childhood Apraxia of Speech also can have comorbid morphological disorder. So I'm going to now hand over to Liz, Jacqueline and Donna so they can further share some of the information and the key learnings from their poster and publication. So welcome Liz, Jacqueline and Donna. Thanks Marie. Thanks Marie. So I guess we'll start by explaining to you all how we decided to investigate this particular issue. And the three of us had each seen from our clinical work with kids with childhood apraxia of speech that these children were making morphological errors in their speech production. And we wondered whether speech intervention alone would support their skills in morphology or whether these children might also need specific morphological intervention. And then we saw there was a call for expressions of interest for a paper in clinical linguistics and phonetics. And we thought, okay, the three of us, we could combine our data sets and actually explore and investigate an answer to this clinical question around children with childhood apraxia of speech and their morphological skills. We had a lot of um, data on their morphological production from our assessments using the Clinical Evaluation of Language Fundamentals Preschool 2nd Edition, and we knew that we could use that to really explore this clinical question. Because what like, we really wanted to know, for these kids who have morphology problems, is it their speech problems that are causing the morphology, or do does it look like it's more a linguistic-based um, morpho- morphological problem? So we had lots of data, and we thought, well, let's have a look. Let's see if we can answer that question. Yeah, and um, there isn't a lot of previous research on this area, so there wasn't a lot of um, existing literature to help us with our clinical decision-making. Both studies that have been published before, so Elkerman and Aram in 1983 and McNeil and Gillen in 2013, um, only looked at consonant errors as being speech errors that they considered in terms of um, having some... Um, overlap with expression of morphological markers. So they, when they both did their studies, they also considered children who had high MLUs, in the case of Elkerman and Aram, or high intelligibility. So that's not necessarily the type of kids mm. that you see every day in clinical practice. Yeah. But their take-home messages were that if you just account for consonant errors, then um, actually a lot of the children do demonstrate greater deficits than just those and that would indicate a morphological um, disorder. Um, but we know that children with childhood apraxia of speech have a lot of speech errors that are beyond just consonant substitutions. So yeah. they also have difficulties expressing weak syllables. So um, 
using um, appropriate lexical stress yeah. um, to so they t they can produce um, strong syllables but not the weak syllables in English, um, and they'll tend to delete those weak syllables mm. or replace it with a strong syllable. We also know that they have difficulties producing clusters, polysyllabic words, central vowels such as the er vowel, mm. um, and a range of other speech errors. So this was kind of our chance to do some really deep coding of this data and actually try and use all the different um, speech errors that a child with childhood apraxia of speech could exhibit to see whether or not they could account for the children's morphological issues. And do you want to give some examples, Donna, of the morphemes that we know um, are impacted by things like weak syllables and clusters? Because you pulled that data out for us. Yeah, so like for a word like if we're looking at a superlative like fastest, so it has the S sound in it, which is a late eight sound. Um, it has a weak syllable, so the ust bit has a weak syllable, it's got a cluster and it's a polysyllabic word. So all of those things would make would make that hard. So a lot of the tests that we've got that are supposed to be looking at morphology are really um, speech heavy. So for kids who've got difficulties with their speech, um, sometimes it can be hard to work out, do they have a, a morphology problem or is it really just their speech problem that doesn't let them um, convey their, their morphological knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. And um, through the work that we've done um, in coding that speech data that I was talking about before, um, we found that there were lots of speech confounds with mm, the self-P2, yeah. the assessments that we use. So we looked at both the word structure and the recalling sentences subtest to get an idea of their morphology, not only in single words, but also in um, repeated phrases. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there are lots and lots of speech confounds in that data. So, And particularly in the recalling sentences subtest, the, the um, word the is so often a weak syllable, and we know that weak syllables are hard for the children. And, and there were many, many opportunities for them to use the word the in the recalling sentences subtest, so it was really making it tricky for these kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, overall, um, we went into this study with a hypothesis that we actually thought that if we had enough speech errors actually that we were going to analyse, that the speech errors themselves would account for the children's um, morphological errors. Um, but interestingly, we were wrong. Um, or at least we weren't as accurate as we thought, you know. Yeah, like it, it didn't account for all of oh, them, did right. it? And we tried. We really did. We tried to account for all of them and we couldn't. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's, you know, that's the reason why sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. This, our hypothesis was that because these kids make so many speech errors that, you know, it is really hard for them to convey morphological markers. Um but through actually looking at the data and actually getting some empirical evidence on what they're actually doing, we were able to test our assumptions. And I know for me personally, it's changed my practice enormously from here. Yeah, it definitely wasn't always the case that speech production errors were the, the reason behind them not being able to express their morphosyntax accurately. Um, and, and if it really was just their speech problems, what we found in our results is about 50% of the children had difficulties with, with morphology. And if it was their speech problems that had accounted for that, well, then all of the kids would have, would have had problems with morphology. But we're only seeing 50% of them having problems with morphology. And not all of those errors were able to be accounted, by, accounted for by their speech thing. So uh, we've kind of got... We, speech accounts for some of it, and we need to think about the speech assessments that we're using, but it doesn't account for all of the errors. 
So I guess um, in terms of clinical implications for um, this work, um, we the, the first thing, as we've talked about before, is the fact that the assessments that um, we currently use to test morphology, such as the self-P2 subtests of word structure and recalling sentences, are things that are very heavy with difficult to produce speech um, stimuli. So um, the assessment-wise, if you did have a child with childhood apraxia of speech on your caseload and you were thinking, oh, they do make some morphological markers, is this due to their speech? Or which ones, are, I guess, are due to their speech mm. and which ones mm. may actually need some morpho- intervention? Yeah, yeah, some morphosyntax intervention. Um, there are... The first thing you would do is to complete your normal speech assessment um, and get an idea of what actual errors they're making. So if you have knowledge of that, then you can actually consider that when you're actually assessing their morphology. Yeah. And... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Did you want to keep going? Okay. I just thought there was some other broad stuff that we found out from these children. We've talked lots about morphology, but we actually confirmed a lot of the things we'd already thought about um, children with apraxia. So we've often thought, oh, look, their receptive language looks like it's going to be better than their expressive. And we're able to confirm that with this um, particular um, study that we did. So as a group, their expressive language scores were significantly higher than their receptive language scores. Um, with 65% of them having a significant difference between the two of them. And so that, for us, wasn't particularly surprising, but it was nice to see in a study as well. Um, And we also had some thoughts around their semantics. Did you want to talk about that, Jackie? Yeah, we suspected that their semantic skills would be a strength compared to their morphosyntactic skills, and that was also supported by um, our exploration of this data with a larger sample set. So I think um, going on from that, our clinical implications to really take home, as Liz was saying, is to assess speech first so that you are better able to interpret your uh, morphosyntactic assessment data in light of the presenting speech difficulties that the individual child in front of you has. But the alternative to that is to assess morphosyntax more sensitively by trying to use assessment tools that are less confounded with very difficult, motorically very difficult speech aspects. So some examples of those are um, the TEGI, so the test of early grammatical impairment by Rice and Wexler. Um, So it actually has a phonological probe at the start of the assessment that accounts for some of those consonant errors that some of the early studies had done. Um, And it also has about 40% of the stimuli in that assessment um, is quite speech-friendly, so it doesn't have some really difficult um, confounding factors in terms of um, the different speech Um, demands in those stimuli. So the other option is the CHAMP by Dr Elise Baker. So that's the children's assessment of morphophonemes. Um, So it only has 20 items, so it's quite quick, but it does take into consideration um, different... um, the the context of final um, consonants, clusters, and also syllable context. So that is more speech-friendly. The only thing you probably want to add to that for children with childhood apraxia of speech is um, putting... Um, also taking into consideration those weak syllables. Yeah. That's a particular impairment for children with childhood apraxia of speech as opposed to other types of speech disorder, including phonological impairment. Yeah. Yeah. So, Liz, if you've assessed some of these kids and you've found that they have um, apraxia and they've got some speech problems and they've also got morpho- morphological problems, what would you recommend clinicians do? 
So there is actually a program that allows you to work on um, both their speech and their morphosyntax at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it comes from research by Ann Tyler and her colleagues and has been published into a procedural manual for clinicians to use called Months of Morphemes. Um, and the authors for Months of Morphemes are Haskell Tyler and colleagues, so the order changes a bit. So just yep. for people who want to Google this and check it out, yep. um, I just want to give the, the authors in the right order. Yep. Um, so basically what you do, they, they actually did some um, studies to work out the best way of doing this. Okay. So you'd have one session... Um, working on their speech and then the next session working on their morphology, the next session working on their speech and alternating those. Um, You would work out exactly what morphemes you needed to work on and Mm -hmm. they're listed in the book. Um, And then um, basically each session that you would have a morphosyntax session for, Mm -hmm. um, you would just focus on the one morpheme that you were wanting to work on. So say that's irregular past tense verbs. First, you'd start off with reading a book and doing some focus stimulation so the child can hear repeated um, productions of an adult form of the morpheme that they want to use. And then you'd move into elicited production tasks, so craft activities where basically um, you're helping them finish your sentences and using some other elicited production techniques to encourage them to use those irregular past tense verbs. And have you been using that with your kids in your clinical practice? I have, yeah. What do they think? So the res- so the results of our study actually made me really think about my practice, mm-hmm. and I have actually used this. Um, I have to say, the kids love it. Mm-hmm. Like having having a period of um, particularly focused stimulation where the pressure's off them to talk, they just kind of sit back and go, oh, "This is great. I just get to listen <laughs> to you for a bit, yeah. rather than that drill, drill, yeah. drill, drill um, motor speech um, training." Um, and I have to say, like the preliminary data from how my clients have done shows great improvement with their morphosyntax where I didn't see that for these kids that I've targeted before. When you would, Do you mean when you were just working on their speech, speech. their That's morphology right. wasn't moving That's and now right. you've moved to target their mm. morphology in alternating sessions with their speech and their morphology is taking off? That's right. How's their speech going? Is it still so, getting there? So their speech is also still improving. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's nice. It's nice to kind of feel like I don't have to choose. Yeah, yeah. Like you get to a point where you go, oh, should I, you know, you get that client guilt thing of should I be working on this or should I be working on that? What's the best way to use this client's time and the family's money? Um, So the fact that this intervention exists and that we can work on both is really excellent. Excellent. Great. All right. So thank you so much. Was there anything else that you wanted to share? Because this has been so rich with learning for our listeners. I suppose the only other thing we'd say is we have published this in um, Clinical clinical Linguistics and Phonetics. And if um, listeners don't have access to that themselves, if they contacted one of us, we'd be able to provide them with an author copy of that paper um, if they're interested. And how's the best way for them to contact one of you? Um, Liz, do you want to give people your email? You're kind sure. of primary author. Yep. So um, my email address is Elizabeth, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H dot Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, at sydney.edu.au. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was such a fantastic conversation. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced that you have been able to share some wonderful information that I know our listeners will really appreciate and treasure. So thank you to Liz and Jacqueline and Donna for your time and it was lovely speaking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.